Again, we'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thank you so much, Nolan, for that. Well, hello, Doxology. It's good to be back with you, and we are now jumping back into First Peter, where we left off right before the Advent season. And uh, just a note to those of you, this is to members, those who call Doxology their church home, who are tuning in via live stream. I know some of you don't tune in until the sermon, uh, so first, shame on you, you wicked sinner. <laughs> um, just kidding, kind of. Uh, but number two, also, we uh, earlier in the service, we went through just how our church is responding to the events of this past week and how we approach these things in light of being disciples of Christ. So just encourage you to uh, go back and watch that and pray along with Abby and Luke as they led our church in prayer, just because it's really important that our church is on the same page there. So, all right, so jumping into First Peter. So 1 Peter, as a reminder, so this is a letter from the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, uh, to believers, and the essence of the question that he answers for us is, how, if you belong to Jesus, then how do you live as a follower of Jesus, not just in your private life, but in your public life, particularly in a culture that not only uh, disagrees with you with respect to your Christian faith, but may even see following Jesus as a harmful thing to do or a bad decision. So this is very needed for us in D.C. as more and more so a Christianity isn't just seen as one among many faith options, but some individuals actually viewed as something harmful for society. And so very helpful is how Peter helps us be disciples of Jesus in public life. And what he tackles today is the subject of work. Work. And so work is where we spend the majority of our hours, and this is so helpful because I think if you had asked me roughly 15 years ago or so when I started my work life is, Steve, you know, what does following Jesus mean for you when you enter into the workplace? I don't think I would have had an answer. I mean, I probably would have said something like, oh, I don't know, I guess be a nice person and maybe share the gospel if and when I can, you know, if I'm able to in the workplace. I, I wouldn't have really known it. You know, was it what does it really mean when it comes to brass tacks about following Christ in the workplace? And so uh, Peter really helps us here. And I think if I had known this, I wish somebody had shown me this passage a long time ago because it would have given me a lot more meaning in my work and helped me endure some really hard seasons where I wasn't really feeling like I was making much of an impact or I was being mistreated by people. And so uh, this will be great for us. And so here's the main thing that Peter says in this passage. Here's the summary. is He says, work really well, even when you're mistreated or not rewarded because this is what Christ did for you. Okay, so work really well in your job, 
even when you're mistreated or when you're not recognized because this is what Jesus did for you. This is really hard. And if you're sitting there thinking, oh, that's not that hard, just, just live a little longer. It's, it's really hard. Okay, and so what we'll, here's how we'll walk through the passage is, first, there is a troubling or awkward, uncomfortable component of this passage uh, that inevitably arises anytime we look at this text. And so uh, we'll look at that first. So what's the troubling part that Peter brings up? Uh, and then we'll walk through Peter's main thesis. So, you know, work really well even when you're mistreated, uh, not recognized, because this is what Christ did for you. Okay, so first, the, the troubling part. Uh, about this passage. So verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So the word servants there can be translated household servants or household slaves or just slaves. And so one way you can translate this is household slaves be subject to your masters with all respect. And so the natural question immediately rises, this sounds like the Bible is condoning the institution of slavery. Is that what's happening? And the answer is absolutely not. It's not condoning slavery, but you say, well, it sure looks like it's, it's not dissuading slavery, right? And so anytime we come to a hard passage in the scriptures, and there are a lot of them, and we look at those things, we don't ignore the hard things in scripture here, the first thing to do is always ask yourself, do I understand the context? Part of reading thoughtfully means understanding the context uh, in which it's being written, because this is written to real people in a real time and place. And so the first thing to note is when you hear slavery, immediately what our tendency to do is to import our understanding of you know, Euro-American, the Euro-American slave trade that took place in roughly the 16th to 19th century, where it was based on race. Uh, it largely happened through kidnapping. Uh, people were slaves for life, and we think that's what's taking place here. And that's not what was taking place. This doesn't mean the slavery was okay. All I'm doing right now is just helping us to actually see clearly the type of slavery that was going on. And so Peter's referencing household servitude in the Greco-Roman culture. And there were two main ways people would become a household servant or slave. The first one was if an invading army came into a nation and they overpowered them, Instead of killing some of the people there, what they would do is they, is they took them and the people would become household servants as payment for their life being spared, essentially. So that was one way they'd become servants. Uh, the other way they would become servants was through a form of paying off a debt. So if they fell into deep debt, they would become a household servant for a long time and eventually they could work off their payment and go free. So again, this isn't to say, oh, this is an okay type of slavery and the slave trade, trade was wrong. No, this was still horrible. Uh, these slaves were still often mistreated. Um, they didn't have a great degree of independence. However, they also a lot of them did operate as doctors, as musicians, as teachers. They were educated, and a number of them could buy their freedom. But Because this, this is the type of servitude we're talking about. But we're still asking the question, why doesn't Peter come out and say slavery is wicked, it needs to be, you know, turned upside down, right? And so again, let's go back to context. So put yourself in Peter's position. So at this time in society, you know, roughly 50 AD or so, uh, Christians don't have, they have zero political, social, economic power. Peter has zero political, social, economic power. And so 
if he comes in and just says, you know, slavery is wrong, revolt, at best what will happen is something like he might get a thinly supported movement that will very quickly die out. And second, it's not going to help the actual Christians who are working as bondservants in this culture because the question for Christians who are slaves is, does the gospel of Jesus have anything to say to me right now, today, even if the institution doesn't go away, which it, which it probably won't. So this is the situation Peter's in. And so what Peter does is incredibly deft because what the Roman Empire did was when they looked at new religions coming into the culture is they looked at how does this religion impact the household structure because the household structures were the foundational building block of the culture. And so the Romans would say, okay, if this new religion disrupts the constellation of relationships in the house, then we're going to squash it. So Peter's in this position where he has to affirm certain parts of the existing social order so the empire doesn't come quickly in and squash it. But number two, he needs to figure out a way to give these Christians who are slaves dignity, help them figure out how to behave as a vulnerable population, and if possible, subvert this institution that's taking place. And that's what he does. So first, he affirms parts that don't necessarily contradict the gospel. So that's just where he says, hey guys, you're in this less than ideal situation So be subject to your masters with all respect. In other words, live a commendable, beautiful life so that as you act with dignity, people over you and other people in the home, even when you're mistreated, when they see how you model Jesus, they may actually come to saving faith. That's what Peter gets at earlier in verse 12 of chapter 2. So he says, hey, you're in this position. Live in this way as, as a vulnerable person. But number two, here's where Peter gets subversive. So first what he does is notice he he addresses the servants directly. He says, servants, be subject to your masters. This was radical in this culture because any time Greek philosophers or people were writing into a household, they never addressed the slaves directly. What they would do is talk to the masters and say, okay, tell your slaves this, i.e. your slaves are, are less than humans, so they don't deserve to be spoken to directly. So Peter, one, he dignifies them by speaking to them directly. Number two, he encourages them to to follow the Lord. That's what he says. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Be mindful of God in verse 19. And slaves were expected to worship the God of their household. Peter says, no. You need to worship the true God, Jesus Christ. So that's the second thing he does that's, that's subversive. And then number three, what he does is, who does he compare the slaves to? That's in the second half of the passage. He compares them to Jesus. He says, Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, when he came to earth, did he come as an aristocrat? No, he came as a servant. He came as a slave. So this is what God thinks of you and your dignity. But then also, number two, Peter's writing in such a way so that when other Christians are reading this letter, essentially what it makes other Christians go is, what Peter is saying is, if you want to see somebody who most models Jesus in their station in life, look at the slaves. You have the most to learn from them than from anybody else. So there's an incredible way that he's dignifying these people in a way that nobody else did and giving them hope and helping them actually to live in the circumstances that they find themselves. And then he does it in a way that over the long run, it subverts the institution. So there's a a theologian named Miroslav Volf who's commenting on this passage. He teaches at Yale. And he says... Peter's call in 1 Peter 2 to follow the crucified Messiah was, in the long run, 
much more effective in changing unjust structures than direct exhortations to revolutionize them. For an allegiance to and worship of a crucified God is a political act that subverts a politics of dominion at its core. So it's really remarkable what, what Peter's doing. And so that's, that's the first thing, just to hopefully give you guys some context in terms of, you know, why doesn't Peter just say slavery is wicked and, and then move on? Okay, it's, it, it's remarkable. So num- number two, that, that still leaves us with, okay, so how does he call them to act? And why does he call them to act in the way he does? And there are two main exhortations that he gives them. And this has a lot of carryover to us because he's essentially addressing a employee, uh, employer-employee relationship. First thing he says is, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So I don't know if any of you have or are currently working under someone who is unjust. It's horrible and has incredible potential to make your life miserable. Or maybe they're not overtly unjust, but in more subtle but ongoing ways, maybe they, you just get the sense they don't respect you, they don't acknowledge you, maybe they belittle you, or maybe not even an employer, but other, other people, maybe, maybe it's a client that you're working with, they just, they, they don't respect you. And so, but Peter says, no, don't just work hard and work well for those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unjust. And so for most of us, I think most of us in here are pretty kind people, until, right, until somebody spites us, until somebody revile, reviles us. That's when we take the gloves off. We go, okay, all right, you don't want to play by the rules. I'm not going to play by the rules either. But Peter says, even when you're belittled, even when you're treated unfairly, work with all your might in the place that God has placed you. That is so hard. And so the question arises, well, if we are being treated unfairly, and we know God is a God of justice, then are we supposed to just be a doormat if we are treated unfairly? And the answer is no. And we know the answer is no because Peter, he gives Jesus as the example for enduring injustice. So see where he says in verse 21, for to this, speaking to working well even when you're treated unjustly, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So this phrasing there of example, following in his steps, is language of a child tracing letters that have already been written for her or for him. In other words, like following along exactly. So he's saying you're to walk exactly in the footsteps of Jesus and how he responded when he was treated unjustly. And Jesus gives us an an amazing example of how to respond when we're treated unjustly. And so turn in your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 18, where we see a, a live example of a case study of how this plays out. And um, so go there in your Bibles if you're here. For those of you uh, online, turn in your Bibles as well. The words will also be on the screen. So this is when Jesus is arrested before his crucifixion. And we're gonna, first we're going to start in chapter 18, verses 12 through 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Okay, so Jesus is arrested. Now note a number of things that are going on here. 
First, it says in verse 13, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. So you should be asking, if Caiaphas is the high priest, the one who's supposed to preside over these cases, why are they taking him to the father-in-law? And they're doing it in secret. Like, if you had a court date, and before the court date, you're taken into this back room where there's just a few, you know, you wonder, hmm, something shady's going on. So why are they taking him to the father-in-law? And it's probably because there's some type of nepotism taking place. Okay, so already you can see the injustice of it. And then it says in verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So the Jewish leaders, what they had to do because they were under Rome is they had to keep the peace because if they couldn't do it, Roman was going to come in and you know upset them and take away their power, their, their power positions. And so essentially what it's saying is that Caiaphas had decided that it would be expedient to kill Jesus even though he was innocent in order to preserve the existing power structures. So already these leaders are way more concerned about preserving their positions uh, than they are about making sure justice is done. And it, I mean, it's not too different from, I mean, goodness, a number of examples, but uh, William Wilberforce, for example, when he went to parliament and he said, hey, this, the, the slave trade needs to stop. We need to abolish it. For well over 10 years, he continued to make a case to abolish the slave trade. And do you think the English leaders listened? Of course not. Because the question is either, because the British system was so heavily built on the slave trade, it's okay, do we care about justice or do we care about the economy and existing power structures? Well, we care about existing power structures and the economy. Like, it wasn't even a question for them. It wasn't even a question. Unfortunately, it's the same thing here. So what John's communicating is Jesus has no chance at justice. He's done. So what does he do? Skip down to verse 19 where the next part of the passage picks up. So the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples in his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So you you see what Jesus is doing here? In the Jewish legal system, what was required is for somebody to be prosecuted, they needed witnesses. And Jesus is saying, you can go out and ask anybody. Everything I did was always out in the open. Go, bring in witnesses. Have them testify about me. He says, I've said nothing in secret. That's a jab toward them because they're doing their legal case in secret. So Jesus is saying, bring in a witness. Have, have them testify. He's calling out the injustice of what's going on. And then when he had said these things, verse 22, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? So key indicator that you don't have a rational reply to somebody is you just resort to punching. <laughs> okay, so he punches Jesus in the face, or I don't know where he punched him, but he punched him. Stinks to be that guy, by the way. Um, and then Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, i.e., they don't have anything to say. They have no defense for what they're doing to Jesus. And so here's what we learn. On the one hand, notice Jesus is not a doormat. He calls him out. He says, here's what you're doing. It's, it's so wrong. And he, and he calls him to fix it. But what does he also not do? When he's struck and then they continue to take him into his, his crucifixion, he doesn't get bitter. He doesn't get jaded. He doesn't get cynical even all the way to his final breaths on the cross when he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
So he continues to forgive his enemies all the way until his final breath. And so how does that play out for you guys? I think just, you know, one simple application is if you are wronged in the workplace, first, you, you shouldn't be surprised because people are sinners, including you and me. Okay, so it's going to happen. And Peter says, if you're following in Jesus' footsteps, it's going to happen. Don't be shocked. So first, don't be surprised. But number two, don't be passive. So this might mean taking what happened to HR, or it might mean going to your boss and having a private conversation about how you've been treated, or what you know, going to the person who's wronged you and confronting them with the injustice of what's been taking place. But on the other hand, you also shouldn't be surprised if you don't get justice, because often the world is broken. And number two, if things aren't resolved in the way that you hope they would be, don't fall into bitterness, don't fall into cynicism, don't become jaded, don't start, you know, altering your work ethic. You know, there are many different ways you can do that because now all of a sudden you're not getting the fairness that you believe you should be given because that's what Jesus models here for us and how to respond to these types of situations. And that's one way that you can live a, such, it's so counterintuitive and countercultural and will help you commend the gospel to other people that are in your workplace. Okay, so that, that's the first thing Peter says is work well even when you're, treat, even when you're mistreated. And then num- number two, what does he say? <clears throat> Partway through verse 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In other words, anybody can work hard when they're rewarded. What's really hard to do is to continue to work well, working with all your might, when you suffer for it. And so an application here is Peter's essentially saying is one of the marks of Christian maturity is that you work really well regardless of the outcome. Regardless of if people acknowledge you for it. Regardless of if you see immediate fruit. And I I love America in a a lot of ways. Um, don't Don't take that out of context considering what just happened this past week. But in the sense of Growing up in America, for, for not all, but for some people, does provide you with a number of opportunities that you just don't get in other areas of the world. And particularly if you were raised in a middle class or an upper class family, um, you get a lot of opportunities. And that's great and fine. One of the downsides to that is I think we can become incredibly entitled. Okay, And one of the ways that plays out is we go into the workplace and we work really hard and then say you don't, get, you don't get promoted, people don't acknowledge you, people don't praise you, we start to whine. We start to complain. We say, hey, I'm going to go work somewhere else. Or I'm not making an impact, and I've been here for eight months. <laughs> and then going on to the next place. What Peter's saying is it doesn't matter. Regardless of you know, rewards you receive or don't, you work really well. Why? In verse 19, because you do so mindful of God. And you see Jesus do this. When Jesus did the right thing in John chapter 18, the one we looked at, was he rewarded immediately? No. He wasn't. In fact, he got the opposite. He was crucified. But see, in verse 23, it says, but Jesus continued entrusting himself to him, that's God, who judges justly. So Jesus knew if I act righteously in this moment, God will vindicate me. And God first did that in Jesus' resurrection, was the beginning of the undoing of all the evil that happened to Jesus. And now Jesus rules and reigns and ultimately will one day come to consummate his kingdom. So Jesus got a huge reward. He also gets us, his bride, the church. 
And so an application here is when you view your job through the lens of, okay, I'm only here for maybe 30 more years, 40 40 more years, 50 more years. And so I have to make sure I get the most that I can, right? I have to be satisfied in my job. I need to get accolades for my job. I need people to recognize me in my field. That's going to lead to a work ethic that not only is very self-centered, but it's going to, you're not going to be able to endure very well. Because inevitably, when you're not getting what you hope for, okay, you're, when your job is, is the measure of your worth and where you look for happiness, then you're going to have to try to, go, try to go find it somewhere else. But if you, like Jesus, know that you are an eternal being and God will vindicate you and he will credit you, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, that you will be credited, rewarded for all the good that you do in the workplace. That radically changes your work and makes you such a better worker in your work environment. And it's also very countercultural. It's a work really well, even when you're mistreated, even, even regardless of the outcome. And so finally, Peter ends with, because Peter knows this is really hard. And so Peter says in verse 21, Jesus isn't just your example but also, the way you do this, the way that you get the power to do this thing that's incredibly hard in the workplace, is remember that Jesus isn't just your example, but he's your precious Savior. See that? He says, because Christ suffered for you in your place. And then he goes on to say in verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is when you see what Jesus did for you, this is what gives you the power to work in such a way that doesn't come naturally. And for Peter, this wasn't just intellectual or academic. So go back to John chapter 18 here, and this is where we'll end. So look at verses 19 through 24. That's when Jesus says, you know, go, to, go ask anybody. I always spoke openly, and he's struck. Do you see the passages that are bracketing that story about Jesus getting beaten as he acts righteously. So verses 15 through 18, Peter's denying Jesus. And then verses 25 to 27 on the other side, on the other bookend, Peter is denying Jesus. And so what do you think John is communicating here? He's communicating something that Peter remembers well. And so what Peter remembers is So Peter, he's getting questioned by the mob. And Peter's doing everything he can to lie, to deflect, even throwing Jesus under the bus to save himself. While at the same time, what is Jesus doing as he is being questioned by a mob? Jesus acts righteously to save his friends, to save Peter, to save you and me. That's unbelievable. That's impossible. That sounds too good to be true, but it's not, because this is, who, this is who Jesus is. And as soon as your life is no longer consumed with questions about, am I, getting sat- am I getting satisfaction in my work? Am I being treated as the way I want to be treated in my work? But you are captivated by the beauty of your Savior, Jesus Christ, who did this for you. When Jesus was enduring under unjust treatment, this wasn't just him being good because he wanted to be good. He was being faithful so that where you are faithless, you can still be brought into the kingdom of God. This is amazing. And so I don't care if you are a CEO or a gardener. I don't care if you are a 
mother or a top staffer on the Hill. I don't care if you are a cashier or a lawyer. What you're called to do, what Peter, the amazing charge Peter calls you to do is wherever you are, work with all your might, regardless of if you're mistreated, regardless of the outcome, because this is what Jesus Christ did for you. The one who, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was threatened, when he, when he suffered, he did not threaten. But instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And by his wounds, you are healed. So let's be workers, as Jesus calls to do. It's an amazing calling. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, this is a hard, this is a hard word, um, but it's also an amazing calling, Lord, that wherever we are, uh, we have dignity in our work, whether we work in the home or work somewhere else, Father. And so, Lord, this is hard. I mess up in this area so many times, and so I pray that you will help me and you will help our church to uh, work for you, ultimately, uh, not for the people around us. And when we're mistreated, help us to not be doormats, to uh, respectfully uh, confront people, call it injustice for what it is, but also not to do so in a spirit of dehumanization or to become jaded or cynical or then cease to work hard because of how we're being treated. Uh, help us do these things by the power of our resurrected Savior. We thank you so much for him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.